Hello guys, welcome back to another episode of Addicted to Crime podcast. I'm here with part two of heavy hitter Ed Gein. I have a lot of information to cover in this episode today, so I hope you're ready. Before I begin, I want to open with a brief disclaimer. During this episode, there will be mention of topics that may be disturbing to some listeners, including necrophilia. Listener discretion is advised. You may remember me from a couple gruesome episodes I chimed in on with Shelby a while ago. I just wanted to tell you about a greeting card company I started called the Stillwater Company. I offer prints of the sweetest farm animals in Wisconsin's countryside, all in packs of 4x6 greeting cards. All of the proceeds from any of the sales go towards a local shelter that helps at-risk youth in our neighborhood. And you can check it out at www.welcometostillwater.com if you're interested. Thank you. Make sure you listen to part one before you catch this episode. In part one, I had about 17 pages of notes, and I talked about Ed's parents, George and Augusta Gein, and their earlier lives, marriage, giving birth to their children, Henry and Ed. We see George's abusive behavior towards Augusta and the boys. We see his alcoholism, laziness, and neglectfulness of his grocery business, and then the farm duties. And then we see George's death. We then see Henry's suspicious death, and we talked about how it looked like Ed might have had something to do with his death, even though he was never formally charged with Henry's death. Augusta, the domineering mother who died shortly after Henry's death, we talk a lot about her, and then we talk about Ed's decline, his hygiene declines, his home declines, and he starts developing his interest in hobbies, and they're related to decomposing corpses. His mother was dead and gone now. He was struggling with how empty the house was, and it almost seemed like the women whose bodies he'd dig up at night in the cemeteries were to try and recreate his mother. Now, were they, was he trying to recreate his mother or try and be his mother himself? The jury's still out on that. There's a lot of theories on why he did what he did, and we'll talk more about that, like the why, later in the end of the episode. But for part two, I think I have about 24, 25 pages worth of notes. So it's a much heavier episode today. So let's get into it. So Ed Gein was fashioning suits made from skin. He was fashioning skin suits. He had created a vest type of shirt, if you can even call it that. And it was made from human skin that he had cut off and skinned from the bodies he dug up in the cemeteries. The vest had string at the end of it so it could be fastened and the strips of skin would be used to make that vest and this vest also had a skinned woman's chest and as well as he'd use the skin to make a pair of leggings. The strips of skin would also be used to create a face mask. He'd take off all of his clothes and then he would butt naked put on these decomposing skin leggings, this skin vest, and his skin face mask. 
And he would walk around the house like dressed like this, pretending to be a woman. He'd even go outside and walk around dressed in this hideous skin suit, just like walking around pretending to be a woman. Can you just imagine walking around outside, maybe taking a walk outside at night, which don't do that, by the way, that's dangerous. And can you imagine seeing Ed Gein dressed in this skin suit? Just just the light of the moon and then this this man walking naked around in this skin suit of decomposing human bodies. That's literally right out of a horror movie. Like, it's so bizarre. It doesn't even sound real. You're probably like, oh, Shelby, you're like pulling my leg. No, I'm not. It, it, this is real. He did do that on several occasions. It is also creating other objects from the corpses he would dig up in those cemeteries. Through the readings he'd been doing, his dad's background as a tanner, as well as watching his mother slaughter the pigs, he was familiar with cutting and skinning, and he was becoming very, very good at it. And I hate to say that, but he really was. He was also learning how to preserve the body with oils so the skin wouldn't stiffen and so he could use it longer. One of the bodies he dug up was Eleanor Adams. She was 51 years old. She was a wife and a mother to two adult-aged kids. He knew her before she passed away. And when she died and her death announcement was in the obituary, he immediately went that night to dig up her body and he brought her body to his home almost immediately. However, he was very turned off by the smell of the bodies that he would bring to his house. He just couldn't keep a corpse fresh enough in his own home, and he wanted a fresher body to work with so he could have access to the body longer. So he went hunting, and someone popped into his mind right away, and this woman would be the perfect fit for what he had envisioned. Now, when he wasn't doing odd jobs for the town people or babysitting their children or reading his books about the Nazis, necrophilia, looking at autopsy photos from cases or skinning bodies he'd dig up from the cemeteries, Ed Gein would go to the ice cream parlor regularly in his spare time, as well as go to a bar in Pine Grove, Wisconsin called Mary Hogan's Tavern. Now, the owner of the tavern, Mary Hogan, was a large and tall woman with a thick German accent and a very big, booming voice. She held her own in the tavern and was a force to be reckoned with. When Ed would go to the tavern, he'd drink occasionally, but remember, his mother had instilled the, the fear of the devil's drink in him for many years. He, he'd watched alcohol ruin his father's life, so he wasn't a very avid drinker. But when he'd go to this tavern, he'd go to watch Mary and to basically gawk at her. Mary Hogan reminded Ed of his mother, but not in a good, positive way. In Ed's mind, basically, here was this woman who looked like his mother on the outside, but was just the opposite of what his mother was in every other way possible. He always viewed his mother as perfect, could do no wrong, this strong powerhouse woman that kept the family afloat, this righteous godly woman, etc., etc., while he viewed Mary Hogan as this loud, brassy character who'd cuss, she owned and worked at a bar, and she had a questionable past. Mary had a shady past with the mob in Chicago, and that is according to the book Deviant by Harold Schechter, and she even worked as a madam there. So Ed knew that about her past, and he disapproved. Mary had also been divorced twice, which, you know, isn't wrong, of course, but it was very wrong in Ed's eyes. So he viewed Mary as this sinful, loud woman, and perhaps his train of thought was, 
Why was Mary Hogan allowed to live? And why did his perfect mother have to die? And now it's a twisted, you know, mentality. And it's hard for us to understand his reasoning and how his mind kind of wrapped around this idea. And I think it's good that we don't understand it personally. It just shows to me his maturity level at this time and just how it wasn't where it should be. One afternoon on December 8, 1954, a Portage County small town farmer named Seymour Lester walked into the Mary Hogan's Tavern, but was surprised at how quiet it was. There wasn't anyone sitting by the bar. Mary wasn't there. It was just really eerily quiet, and it should have been. You know, it was an afternoon. He looked behind the bar, and he saw a pool of blood. He was obviously freaked out, and so he ran to the closest house where he didn't call the police first. He called the town chairman of Pine Grove, Villas Waterman. And then after he told the town chairman what he saw, he then phoned the police. When the police came to the scene, they discovered the blood behind the bar, and they discovered that Mary Hogan was missing. The blood smears made it look like a body was dragged across the floor from the back of the bar towards the back door. When police were closely examining the bar, they found a bullet cartridge matching a 32 caliber pistol and overturned furniture, but that was it. That was all the clues that they really had. Mary didn't leave anything behind. She didn't take anything with her. No money was missing from the till. It was just really odd. The state crime lab in Madison was called, but they couldn't really find anything of value for the officers to use in their investigation. Mary's disappearance was a mystery to everyone around. Was she involved in foul play, maybe related to her past? Who knows? Her trail immediately went cold, and it was hard for officers to do anything because they didn't have anywhere to go on. They really didn't have any more leads. A year after Mary's disappearance, the town of Plainfield's newspaper ran an article on the front page headlined, What Happened to Mary Hogan? The next year, they ran another article about it by Ed Marola, who was the editor of the paper at that time. And I want to read that article to you right now. It's just, it's just really, you kind of get the feel of the time, you know, and I just feel like it'll put everything into perspective for you. So I am going to read you that article right now. Again, it's on, it's in the book Deviant by Harold Schechter, and I'm going to read it to you right now. After two full years, complete mystery surrounds the disappearance of Mary Hogan, who apparently was shot and dragged from her town of Pine Grove Tavern on December 8, 1954. Nothing, absolutely nothing, has come to light, and the questions concerning the whereabouts of Mary Hogan's body are as unknown today as they were on that bleak December day when a neighbor stepped into the tavern to find a strangely silent building and blood splotched on the floor. Following the disappearance of Mary Hogan, a series of crimes took place in the Almond area some miles to the east, but along the same highway. Other crimes were committed at Wild Rose and at Plainfield. Some of those crimes were partly solved by the confessions of a town of Almond Man. But in so far as the Mary Hogan case is concerned, it is still a complete and deep dark mystery. Speculation is still rife about what happened to her, and people still talk about Mary Hogan. Was it something out of her past that caught up with her? Or was it just plain local hoodlums who perpetrated the crime? Was the body of Mary Hogan taken away and cremated somewhere, as some people surmise? Or does the body of Mary Hogan lie rotting in some lonely town of Pine Grove or nearby area grave? The authorities don't know. No one knows, that is, except the murderers themselves.
When people would talk to themselves about Mary and about what might have happened to her or where she might have gone, good old Ed Gein, silly Ed, would make comments like, oh, I know where she's at. She's over at my place. I got her at my place. Everyone there would laugh it off and be like, oh, yeah, Ed, sure you do, Ed. Or else they would kind of like shift in their seat like, oh, Ed, that's in poor taste. Like, that's not funny. Don't joke about that. But unfortunately, Ed was not joking. Later, after his arrest, Ed would tell investigators what happened to Mary. Now, the day Mary disappeared, Ed was at the bar. He waited until every customer had left that, that December, and it was dark, and then he went behind the bar, ignoring Mary when she told him that the bar was closed, and he fired a thirty-two caliber pistol into Mary's skull, instantly killing her. He then dragged Mary's body outside to a sled he had waiting outside. He put her body on the sled, and then he walked with her body on his sled to his home. And remember, he didn't live in town. He lived outside of town, and he had to walk with the body in the sled he was pulling. Anyone could have driven by and seen Crazy Ed pulling this sled with Mary in it, Any anyone at all. But Ed would later say that it took him hours to get home with her body. Her body was used most likely for the skin of some of Ed's creations around his home and maybe even some for the skin suit. So now let's talk super quick about some of the crimes Ed Gein was suspected of but never convicted of, okay? So these were some disappearances going around at this time. Mary Hogan had disappeared and there were also some disappearances and I'm going to speak on them super briefly. Eight-year-old Georgia Weckler, and this is one of the state's oldest unsolved missing persons cases, she went missing on May 1st, 1947 at around 3.15 in the afternoon. Georgia was dropped off by a friend's mom after school. She crossed Highway 12 and then got some mail out of her mailbox, and then it's like she vanished after that point. Nothing was found. No clues were found except for tire tread marks. The vehicle that the tread marks belonged to was a Ford, and at the time, police questioned Ed Gein, but he was ruled out as a suspect. The case was cold for a long time, but it was recently reopened by Detective Leah Meyer with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. They had a suspect, 22-year-old Buford Senate. He was a known sexual offender in the area. His first crime fit the MO of George's disappearance, and he did confess to killing her while in prison for another rape and murder in 1947. And he knew things that hadn't been released to the media, so that kind of leads me to think that maybe he had something to do with it. Witnesses gave a description of the man that matched him, so it matched the person in that truck, and the car description matched his car at the time, too. He said he abducted her with someone, and he didn't give the name of who. Then she died, quote-unquote, accidentally by an overdose of sleeping pills, where they then threw her body in the Wisconsin River. There's thought to be some truth to his statement, but there's also thought to be some lies to this, too. And he later, it's, it's important to know, he later recanted this and took all of this back. So we'll sadly probably never know what happened to her. As of 2021, her body still has not been found. But Ed Gein was questioned at the time for her disappearance. So he was obviously rubbing some people the wrong way, even at that time. Witnesses to her disappearance say they saw a black Ford sedan pull into the driveway after Georgia was dropped off and after she got the mail, and at the time, George had a 97 maroon sedan. When the discovery of Ed's House of Horrors was going on, the Hanneman Archive later said that 8-year-old Georgia Jean Weckler's and another girl that was missing at the time, 
Evelyn Hartley, who was 15 and had also disappeared, were some of the body parts that were found in Ed's house. So why did he have pieces of these girls' body in his house? It's another mystery. He's never officially connected with these girls, but you hear what I'm saying? But pieces of their bodies are found in his house. Like, how and why? What do you think happened? Did he murder them and take their bodies to his house? Was he that other person that, um, um, well, hang on, what's his name? His name flew out of my head. That Buford Senate said helped him? Was he that other person? Uh, did he find their dead bodies somewhere and bring them to his home? Or did he know somehow what Buford was doing and then get the bodies after? And I think, I think that last option is less likely, honestly, in my opinion, it seems more likely that he found the girls, killed them, and took them to his home, uh, and that Buford was just making it up because, you know, a lot of inmates, they like to, like, I don't know, they like to confess to things. It's a really weird thing, like a false confession. They just like the attention. They just like the notoriety that they get from it. But if he later recanted it, did he have anything to do with it at all? Was it just Ed Gein? And if he did that, then he's actually responsible for more murders than he, we have given him credit for. So it's just something that I want you to keep in the back of your head that he's never been convicted of more than one murder officially, but he is thought to have done more murders. He's confessed to two and there, there's more, I think there's just more here than meets the eye. Like they, we need to look deeper. We need to, I don't really know what we can do now because spoiler alert, he's dead now, but I think personally he did more murders than we know about and maybe more crimes could have been solved if he would have just confessed to different things but that's neither here or there let's talk about Bernice Warden now now we're gonna jump to November 16th 1957 if you're from Wisconsin or really anywhere in the Midwest really you know that that week of November is deer hunting week. Don't hike that week, you know, to stay away from the woods or the fields or else if you have to go out at all, wear that ugly fluorescent bright orange so the deer hunters in the woods can see you and you won't be mistaken for a deer. So it's deer season week that week and the men are all gone and in the woods trying to get a big buck for the meat for their families for the winter. Now, around this part of Wisconsin, small diners or cafe will, will open super early, like four in the morning, for the hunters either to grab a quick breakfast or a coffee before taking off to find their deer stand or tent. And like whole businesses will shut down. Kids will take off school. So it's a very big deal here in the Midwest. All that being said, I want you listeners to know the atmosphere of this small Wisconsin town at the time. It's a brisk late November day. It's a quiet Saturday and everyone who isn't out hunting is just doing their normal routine. Nothing is really out of the ordinary. Now, one thing was different this day, though. Bernice Warden didn't open Warden's Hardware and Implement Store at 198 South Main Street in Plainfield that day. Warden's Hardware was one of the town's oldest businesses. They were reliable. They were always open. If you needed something, you could go to Warden's Hardware. Now, it was weird that she had appeared to be closed. Now, Bernice herself was a larger woman. She wasn't fat. She was just bigger boned and sturdy. She had a very 
booming voice. Everyone knew her when they heard her. They knew it was Bernice. They loved her. She was a very likable person. And a neighbor saw her that day get her mail earlier that morning around 8 in the morning. And the neighbor saw her at the shop. So she was there at some point. But then the doors are locked midday on a Saturday. And the neighbors thought, well, you know, that's not too strange. Like, maybe she just took half of the day off, right? And she decided to close for the weekend. Well, what was weird were the lights were left on. The neighbors didn't think she'd lock up for the weekend and then leave the lights on. But they kind of just, like, shrugged it off and they continued about their day. Around 5 p.m. that night, Frank Warden, Bernice's adult son, came home from a long day in the woods deer hunting. He was empty-handed. He didn't get a deer, but he, he wasn't worried about that. He had more time that week. He could get one tomorrow. A neighbor in passing mentioned the fact that his mother didn't open the shop for long that day. And Frank was confused by this, and he didn't know why she would have closed early. So he went to the family hardware store to check on his mom. And sure enough, the doors were locked. So Frank ran home. He got a spare key. He unlocked the door, and he looked inside. And immediately, alarm bells went off in his head. The cash register wasn't where it should have been on the counter. There was a 22 caliber rifle that was out of place. They kept it on a rack in the hardware store, and that wasn't where it should have been. And there was blood and drag marks leading to the back door, and he couldn't find his mother anywhere. He immediately dialed the local sheriff, and it just so happens that Frank Wardens was the town's deputy. So when the sheriff arrived, Frank right away shared his suspicions about what might have happened. He told them that he thought that Ed Gein did something to his mother and that his mother was with Ed Gein. He said Ed had been hanging around a lot lately. Sometimes he didn't even buy anything from the store. He just came to talk to Bernice. And it got to the point where he was borderline stalking Bernice. Like, they were feeling uncomfortable about it. So when she wasn't there, Frank's gut told him that Ed had something to do with it. Plus, Frank talked to Ed the day before, and he told Ed he'd be gone hunting all day. Which would let Ed know that Bernice would be there alone at the store and that no one else would be around. So with a finger pointed at their first suspect and after finding a receipt at Warden's Hardware Store proving that Ed was in the store and that he made a purchase that day, they went to go talk to him. Now, Officer Dan Chase and Deputy Poke Spees went to Ed's house later the night of November 17th, the day after Bernice went missing. But when they arrived at the farmhouse, it didn't really seem like Ed was home, his truck wasn't there, and they didn't look around, so they went to another house that they thought he could be, the Hills. Ed was known to go here to visit, the Hills had invited him over for dinner a lot, and they did find Ed in his truck at this house. He was getting ready to leave. Now, the officers asked to speak with Ed, and Ed didn't resist. He got out of his truck. Officer Chase asked how Ed's day went from start to finish. He wanted to get, like, the play-by-play. And then after Ed told him about his day, he had Ed relay the story a second time. And when it didn't match, Ed made a comment about how Bernice Warden was missing. And he said something along the lines of, you know, I heard someone say she's dead. And that statement was enough to just completely shock the officers, and it was enough for them to hold him as a suspect. So they radioed to another officer, telling them that they had it in custody, and they were going to take him to the station for further questioning. They took it to the station, and then Officer Arthur Shelley 
and Captain Schaffelmeister. Wow, I butchered that name. It's Captain Schaffelmeister. Schaffelmeister. Arthur Shelley. Arthur Schley. <laughs> it's Arthur Schley and Captain... Okay, I'm going to spell it because you're like, wow, she's really struggling with this word. It's a gnarly word, guys, okay? It's Captain S-C-H-O-E-P-H-O-E-R-S-T-E-R. Captain Schaforster. Schaforster. I'm trying, okay? I'm just going to call him Captain Shep, okay? We have Arthur Schley and Captain Shep. Those were the two lucky ones who went to Gein's farm to see if they could find Bernice there. So they go to the farmhouse. They open the farmhouse door and they go into Ed's house and start looking around their home using their flashlights. Ed's home didn't have electricity. They couldn't turn on the lights. They had to use their flashlights. It's dark out. Major yikes, major spooky vibes here. And doesn't this whole thing just sound crazy? And again, I'm going to say it, it. It sounds like a horror movie, right? The two officers made their way through the piles of garbage and the rotten food in the home. It stunk. They're just using their flashlights, trying not to trip. They tried unlocking two doors in the home, but they were bolted shut. They couldn't get it open. So they just kept walking through the house until they got to the summer kitchen. The summer kitchen door was open and it was kind of like a small shed and it was attached to the main part of the house. They shined their flashlights, and just like in a horror movie, Officer Schley brushed up against something, and when he looked at it, at first his eyes kind of fooled him. He looked at this object hanging from the rafters, and he thought it was a gutted deer. But to his horror, when he looked closer at what was hanging from the wooden beams, he saw a huge pale white body hanging from the rafters above him, and it wasn't a deer, it was a human. The body was hanging by the feet, pointed downward, and the body was cut from the chest to the legs and disemboweled and gutted just like a deer. The body was also decapitated. And if you can imagine anything worse than discovering this body at night, it spooked them, they didn't know what it was, so they're scared. Anything worse than that, the officers recognized the body hanging from the rafters. The body belonged to 58-year-old grandmother, Bernice Warden. The two men ran out of the shed. They vomited in the snow at what they had just seen. And I can't imagine walking into that house looking for a missing person and finding that. I just can't imagine. This case was turning out to be way bigger than they initially realized. They radioed the station telling them what they saw and then they went back into that house, which, wow... After seeing what you saw, you want to take your flashlights and go back in that house? I mean, way to do your job, but I wouldn't do that. That's, that's, ugh, I, uh, <laughs> they're braver than me. That would freak me out. And the book calls, the book Deviant calls this house a madhouse. And I can't think of anything else to better describe it. Like, it was unreal madness. The floors were nasty piles of things everywhere. And the smell, the smell was putrid. There were human intestines, head, livers, hearts just scattered on the floor. The officers looked at the scattered bowls and eating utensils on the floor, and they noticed some funny-looking bowls. They closely examined the bowls with their flashlights, and they found them to be, get ready for this, sawed off and hollowed out human skulls. Human skulls. And there just wasn't one 
human skull bowl. They were multiple skull bowls. He had an entire set, and they had been used. He had been eating out of them. Thankfully, by this time, more investigators were here, and there was a generator brought in, so finally they have more lighting. The officers could better investigate. They weren't walking around the house destroying evidence with their flashlights and stuff. Like, the big guns are here, right? They're, they found intact skulls by the dirty mattress where Ed slept every night, and these skulls were used as decoration. By the kitchen table, they were looking at the chair set, and so, you know... Um, like a chair and you sit down and it's kind of like the chair seat, the area where the person sits, it's like a cushion. Well, when they were looking closely at that cushion, they thought it looked weird. So they shined their light on it. They took it up close by the light and they saw that Ed had upholstered the chair cushions with strips of human skin. And there were five chairs in total like that. They found many, many other items around this house that were fashioned from human skin, including bracelets. They found a small trash can made from skin. They found multiple lampshades that were made from skin. They found the sheath of a hunting knife uh, made from human skin and a tom-tom with human skin. They also found at Ed's home a belt, uh, and it wasn't just any belt. Um, this belt was made from uh, women's nipples. It was a nipple belt. He had cut off the nipples of women he had dug up from the cemeteries, and he made a belt. Let that sink in for a moment. A nipple belt. More investigators and members of the crime lab were finally brought in, and they started processing his home like a proper crime scene. At one point, a crime lab specialist found a shoebox in the home that was full of female genitalia, and they were at different stages of decomp. Some looked to be very old, they were shriveled up, and they were decaying, while others were fresh, and it looked like Ed had tried to preserve them with some salt to try to get them to last longer. Another shoebox was opened, and they found noses, four noses, human noses, and they found a container that had pieces of human head. This is when they found the vest, the leggings made from the skins, and then they found the face mask. But there were more than one face mask. They found nine actual human faces that had been peeled from the scalps. There were holes for where the eyes once were, and a hole for the mouth, and sometimes there was even hair left at the top of the mask. They found a brown paper bag, and... Which is so inconspicuous by itself, right? Like, what's to fear? But after the day of discovery in that home that they were having, I would not want to be the officer that had to open that plain brown paper bag. Deputy Arnie Fritz was the lucky one who opened the bag and discovered to what looked to be a human head. He saw what he thought was the hair and then the scalp. He reached his hand into the bag, reached for it, and held it up to the light to get a better look. Weeks later, after he'd recovered from this, he said he wasn't sure why he did that. He was just in a daze at what he's been seeing. And when he held it up to the light, the officer next to him, horrifyingly enough, recognized the head as belonging to Mary Hogan, the missing tavern owner who'd been missing at this time for three years. She had been in Ed's home all along. Other parts of Bernice were found around the home, her heart was found in a bag in front of Ed's stove, and I hate to think what he was going to do with it. 
Mary's, or not Mary's, excuse me, Bernice's entrails were also found in the home, but her head wasn't located at that time yet. In addition to what I mentioned, they found hundreds of body parts in that house. They found noses, heads, breasts, scraps of skin, scalps, shin bones, vaginas, and so many other body parts. It was impossible for investigators to to just piece together, excuse the pun, I'm sorry, how many victims there actually were involved here, and they couldn't find who belong- what belonged to who. There was just so much. And remember, this is just in the small kitchen area and Ed's room. They hadn't gone into the sealed room yet, but when they went in there, they were almost just as shocked to find the room in pristine condition, like it had never been touched. It was. It looked like it had been cleaned every day. And the book Deviant calls that room that Ed had set aside a shrine. He had the shrine to his mother. And I'm going to post pictures of Ed's house, the part that he lived in, the disgusting part, and then the part that he had kept boarded up. And I just want to put, want you to look at that side by side. And it doesn't even look like it's from the same house. Finally, after an extensive search of the insane home, Bernice's head was found in an old tattered burlap feed sack. When investigators looked at the head, this is horrible, they were horrified to see that Ed had stuck nails in each of Bernice's ears, and then he connected the nails above the head with twine, like he was planning on hanging her head up in his home for decoration. Like, those were his plans for that head. Bernice's body was taken to the Gulp funeral home where a postmortem examination was done. When her body was sent there, it was only 12 hours after Frank had reported his mother missing. Let me say this again. All of this had been discovered within 12 hours of Bernice being reported missing. After a long night of horrifying discoveries at the Gein Farm, obviously officers are just wanting Ed to confess. They just want him to confess already, explain, just say something. They couldn't believe what they had seen. Like, give, just give a rhyme or a reason for what they found. They, they were just horrified. But Ed didn't budge. He didn't say anything, even over a period of about 12 hours on and off. He never asked for an attorney, but he was also never advised that he could have an attorney. He just sat there and didn't admit to anything. Now, I'm going to read the findings of Dr. F. Eigenberger, who was a pathologist and who was the one conducting the postmortem examination of Bernice. This is going to be taken directly from the book Deviant, and I'm going to read you his findings now. The body of a murdered and mutilated woman, Mrs. Bernice Warden, had been found in the woodshed of the old Gein farmhouse near Plainfield, Wisconsin. Investigators had led this discovery, had been starting in the hardware store owned and operated by Mrs. Warden. They found an an completely wiped pool of blood. Further observation had led to the belief that the body had been dragged through the store, loaded upon a truck, and then transferred to a private car in which the body had been allegedly been brought to the place where it was discovered. The body had been found hanging by the heels from the roof bars, decapitated and eviscerated. Head and viscera had been found in the same location, the vulva in a box, the heart in a plastic bag. Before performing the autopsy, the above-mentioned locations were visited. Inspection. The body was that of an over-middle-aged, allegedly 55-year-old 
or excuse me, 58-year-old woman, well-shaped and in a good state of nutrition. It had been decapitated at shoulder level by a smooth circular cut which severed skin, all of the soft structures, and the intervertebral cartilage between the 6th and 7th cervical vertebrae that had been cut with a sharp instrument. There was no evidence of jagged edges indicating that no axe or similar implement had been used. The body had been opened by a median incision from the manubrium sterni and extending into the midline to the area just above the mons veris. There the cut circled around the external genitalia for the complete removal of the vulva, lower vagina, and the anus with the lowest portion of the rectum. To accomplish this, the symphys pubis had been split and the pubic bones widely separated. From the appearance of the cut for evisceration, it was concluded that the cut was started from the lower end and terminated from the stomach pit. The reason for this was the somewhat jagged appearance of the cut skin near the chest, indicating hesitation and terminating the knife cut. The vulva and adjoining structures had been removed where present in a carton box together with preserved and dried other specimens of the same type. The freshly removed vulva fit well into the tissue defect of the body. Only few pubic hairs had remained on both sides of the removed organs, and a portion of this hairy skin was removed for, for, for purposes of identification. Examination of the outer genitalia revealed no evidence of trauma, and no conclusion could be reached whether or not sexual intercourse had taken place. The body cavities had been almost completely eviscerated together with most of the diaphragm. Inspection of the trunk and extremities revealed how the body had been hoisted by the heels. There was a deep cut above the Achilles tendon of the right leg, and a pointed crossbar made of a rough wooden stick covered by bark had been forced underneath the tendon. The other side of the crossbar had been tied to a cord, which was tightly fastened to a cut of the leg above the head. This cut had severed the Achilles tendon and had necessitated the tying with cord to hold the body securely to the crossbar. The length of the crossbar was estimated at about three feet. Both wrists had been tied together with longer hemp ropes to the corresponding ends of the crossbar attached to the feet, thus holding the arms firmly when the body had been suspended by the heels. Inspection of the skin surface of the body revealed dirt covering the shoulders, mostly the upper dorsal area, and the dirt resembled dry mud and thin, scaly crusts. The skin of the back, both arms and legs, less of chest and abdomen was somewhat discolored by dust, which showed irregular smudgy areas of heavy covering. Rather striking was the amount of black dust covering both plantar surfaces, dust which appeared to have been somewhat rubbed in, as if from walking barefoot on a dusty, dirty floor. Both breasts appeared good-sized and, for her age, well-formed. They felt medium-firm, most probably because of the adipose tissue had hardened from the exposure to cold. The right nipple appeared normal, the left was somewhat inverted. Both breasts appeared to lean upward, apparently due to the long suspension by the heels. There was no evidence of mutilation of the breasts. Inspection of the body, trunk, and extremities revealed no evidence of antemortem trauma. The exsanguination was complete. Only fingernails showed moderate cyanosis. On the left ring finger was a cameo ring. The empty body cavities were glistening and free from blood, appeared as if they had been washed. No fractures of the trunk or extremities were found. The seventh vertebra was removed for further examination by the Wisconsin State Crime Laboratory. 
the thoracic and abdominal viscera had been separately completely wrapped in newspaper and hidden in a bundle of old clothing this viscera consisted of both lungs with the trachea the aorta from the base to the abdominal bifurcation the esophagus stomach small and large intestines with mesentery and omentum to the lower rectum and block with this were removed the spleen pancreas andrials or adrenals kidney with the uterus upper half of the urine bladder and internal genital organs separate removed had been heart without the pericardium and this had been kept in a plastic bag then the liver the head with the neck was submitted in a cardboard a separate cardboard it fitted with the trunk of the body the hair was medium short cut somewhat curly and appeared soiled with dust and smeared with blood the color of the hair was dark showing considerable graying a roundish hole of the scalp was difficult to find on outer inspection but it was measured when moderately stretched about 0.76 centimeters in diameter the edge of the defect revealed a narrow marginal abrasion there was no tear in the contour of the opening and no evidence of burn nor could there be any particle powder particles be grossly visualized this skin defect suggesting the entrance wound of a bullet was located to the left of the midline and about six centimeters above the neck hairline at 3.5 centimeters laterally and two centimeters above the outer occipital protuberantia the face appeared covered with dust in a regular distribution there was no evidence of external trauma to the face both eyes were closed the nose appeared intact on palpitation but there was blood in both nostrils the left ear had a hooked spike inserted the tip of which was at the time of examination two centimeters deep in the external ear canal there were slight apparently post-mortem exorciations on the outer border of the ear canal blood oozed from this ear in larger quantities than the exorciations indicated tied to the head of the hooded spike was a cord to which another hooked spike of the same size had been attached this right spike was at the time of examination not inserted in the right ear canal the neck revealed no evidence of applied force like from strangling no finger or nail imprints nor scratches the trachea and larynx appeared normal the portion of the lower mandula oblongata and the upper cervical spine had been ripped out this portion of the spinal cord was not found the section of the brain showed hemorrhages in all ventricular spaces the actual bullet track through the brain was difficult to visualize it was evident that the bullet had transversed the brain beneath the corpus callosum passing through the ventricles and struck the sphenoid bone to facilitate the location of the bullet as there was no exit defect x-ray pictures were taken and the bullet apparently of a 22 caliber was located and found within the right orbita beneath the median portion of its roof without destruction to the eyeball the bullet was turned over to the wisconsin state crime laboratory the extensive skull fracture had been the cause for the bleeding from the nose and the ear canal examination of the decapitated and eviscerated body of mrs bernice warden revealed as the only cause of death a bullet shot wound in the head which had been fired in the back of the head the bullet had penetrated the brain anteriorly causing destruction of the vital areas and interventricular hemorrhage as well as extensive skull fracture and some subcarnoid hemorrhage the bullet had lodged in the left orbit it had apparently not been a contact nor a very close shot death had apparently occurred shortly within seconds or minutes 
after the shot had been fired, all other mutilation of the body had been carried out after death. I know that was a long um, reading, but I really like it when I get the the autopsy report. It's just something about reading what the autopsy tech and the, the person who does, the pathologist, something about reading their findings, it just kind of really ingrains, um, not just the severity, but kind of the severity of it, you know, hearing from that doctor's perspective what he's seeing. Um, again, that insert was taken from the book Deviant by Harold Schechter. Go read that book. It's amazing. Um, and I know it was long, but I think it was important to hear exactly what happened to her and just to hear it from that professional's point of view. This is a quote from the Milwaukee Journal, and this was um, on November 18th, 1957, so the day after all of these findings, quote, where last week the talk on North Street was about deer hunting or dairying. Monday, it was filled with speculation on matters that are ordinarily far outside the interests of respectable residents of communities like this. Who could have imagined a few days ago that topics like cannibalism and human butchery would be discussed in Plainfield on Monday, end quote. Of course, it goes without saying almost that the entire country, if not the entire world, blew up at the news of what was going on and what was found at the Gein home. The small town of Plainfield was just completely overrun by journalists and photographers eager to get a good photo of the home, eager to get an inside scoop from law enforcement. The details that were emerging were so horrible. Could they be true? Was it possible that someone could be so evil and so disturbed? While all of what was being reported was true, during just the pandemonium of everything, Unfortunately, some misinformation began being spread, as is normally the case in something like this. For instance, Bernice's heart, instead of being found in a bag, the news said that it was found in a frying pan on the stove, which wasn't true. But reporters didn't care. This kind of news was selling papers, so they printed it anyways. Ed Seller was said to have canning jars full of human blood. This was also not true. And that Ed was cannibal and had eaten parts of Bernice which is not true, at least not proven, and never admitted to any of the bodies. The district attorney of Washara County, Earl Killing, when he was describing Bernice's body and house, her entrails were gutted from her, he said, quote, it appears to be cannibalism, end quote. Deputy Dave Sharkey of Wood County said at one point that with all the body parts that they were finding, basically that they were unsure how many victims there actually were. He told reporters, quote, we know we have at least 11 dead. There might be 50 for that matter, end quote. Which, of course, that just added to the craziness. Ed's farm was so big, remember, it's 195 acres, that the search of the property was taking so long. More and more human heads were found. More body parts were being discovered left and right. All of the crimes and missing people from the state from the last decade started to be looked at as possibly connected to Ed Gein, and more and more officers wanted to speak with him and see if he could help some sell, help solve some of their cold cases. Other crimes he was presented with he denied because he said he had never been further than Milwaukee from his home, so he couldn't have committed some of these crimes and been a part of these missing persons cases. On November 18, 1957, Ed finally decided to break his silence, come clean, and share his version of events. He admitted to killing Bernice Warden, but he said that he went into a daze and didn't remember a lot of details about her death. He said that he went to the hardware store to buy the antifreeze and to get Bernice. 
Now, the receipt at the hardware store that was found that it, it did prove that Ed Gein had purchased antifreeze, so this was confirmed. He said he doesn't remember shooting her or hitting her, but he remembers taking the cash register. He remembers dragging her body to his truck, driving it to, or dragging the body to the truck, driving it to his home, hanging her body up by the heels in the shed. He told them how he drained the body of the blood and he had the blood in a 10-gallon pail. He then told how he gutted Bernice, but said that he thought he was getting a deer, not an actual human. When investigators asked if Ed was going to eat Bernice or had plans to eat her, he said he was fuzzy on those details and he didn't really remember that or not. Which, that's puzzling to me. Like, he's remembering all of these details from his crimes. Why can't he remember this? Is it because it just didn't happen? It wasn't really important to him? Or, he, or did it happen and he was just in a daze? I don't know. I can't let myself dwell on that. But when the investigators asked him about the other body parts in the home, he said that he didn't kill or hurt the other bodies, except for Mary Hogan. He admitted to doing killing her. But he said the other bodies that were found weren't his victims. He admitted that he those people were dead when he took them and cut them up because he had taken the bodies from the local cemeteries. He told them that starting in 1947, two years after his mother died, he made nightly visits to the cemeteries after he'd read about someone passing away. Then he would dig up the bodies, take what he wanted from the bodies, then reportedly dig up the caskets back on the ground, and nobody was the wiser. He was gone before anyone knew what he had done or seen. He said that these acts were mostly committed when he was in his dazes. He admitted to going to three separate local cemeteries for a total of about 30 visits. When he was asked, Ed denied having sex with the bodies because he said they, quote, smelled too bad, end quote. At first, investigators had the suspicion that Ed had an accomplice. He couldn't have dug and transported all those bodies alone, right? But when Ed admitted to digging up and removing nine individual graves, and then he led officers to those graves unprompted, that was enough for them to realize that, yeah, he did do it alone, and he didn't have any outside help. Ed was taken to his farm to show the officers where he had dumped Bernice's blood in the pail, which was outside behind his outhouse, and he pointed to other areas around his home that police had questioned him about earlier at the station, and there's a photo of Ed showing the officers around his farm, and it's just so eerie. Ed Gein was brought before the Washara County Courthouse, and he stood before Judge Clark. He was arraigned on a charge of armed robbery, which was for stealing the cash register. The murder charge would come later. The cash register contained only $41. The murder charges would come after they were done combing through Ed's house. They had to do that first. Ed at this time requested a lawyer, and the bail was set at $10,000. Then Ed was taken back to his cell. November 21st, 1957, Ed was finally accused of the first-degree murder of Bernice Warden, but Ed's lawyer, William Belter, entered a not guilty by reason of insanity plea on Ed's behalf. Now, the press at this time is finally allowed a look at Ed's home after the evidence was all removed, and they were, of course, horrified and just in awe of being in the location where all the body parts were found. And this is where we get all those pictures that I'm going to share on social media. Like, this is, at this time, this is where they're getting these pictures. One article by the Milwaukee Journal, written by Robert W. Wells, says, quote, 
the little man who lived here amid his mad collections and a state of disorder that few of the animals who were his closest neighbors would have tolerated had most of the doors and windows sealed with heavy tar paper or thick dirty draperies inside the decaying house the four rooms which he used were so filled with junk that even so slight a man as Gein must have had difficulty moving about there was plenty of space that could have been his for the taking however the nearly empty upstairs with its five uncluttered rooms and the two downstairs rooms which he had sealed up securely and dedicated to the dead past when ed Gein was not alone in the world end quote this is when the world found out exactly uh what happened and what kind of crimes ed had done now about 18 months after his mother's body was buried ed dug up his mother's body in the dead of night and brought it to his home this was supposedly the first time ed dug up a body and the first body he brought home now before i started researching this for some reason i didn't think that ed dug up his mother i don't know why i thought that i just assumed he didn't but i found in at least three different articles that her body was dug up by ed so i'm guessing it must be true which, which is just crazy like I don't know where he kept his mother. I, I don't know, you know, I really couldn't find anything about that. I don't know if his mother's body was in the the boarded up rooms. I don't think we'll ever know and I don't want to know. Um, but, but Ed's mother was dug up and was one of the bodies in Ed's home. So we know some of his mother's body was found there, if not the entire body. Some of Georgia and Evelyn's body was found there, the two missing girls. Mary's body was found there, Bernice's body, as well as many other individuals. With an estimated of 10 bodies were said to have been dug up by Ed and brought to his horror house. Now, the court had Ed Gein evaluated. His lawyer had made this not guilty by reason of insanity plea, and so they had to evaluate him. Ed was evaluated by Dr. E. F. Schubert, and Ed told him that he often suffered from memory lapses or dazes where he'd do things and then he'd wake up to the aftermath of his actions later. During this interview with Ed, Dr. Schubert found that he had, quote, an abnormally magnified attachment to his mother, end quote. The Central State Hospital released the findings of this interview to the judge, and the judge found that Ed Gein was unfit to stand trial, so he was sent to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. On January 6th, 1958, he was declared legally sane. He was later transported to the Mendota State Hospital, where he stayed for almost 10 years until the year 1968, when he was finally declared fit to stand trial. November 7th, 1968, the trial begins, and it lasts about a week. November 14th, he's found guilty of the first-degree murder of Bernice Warden by shooting, but at this time, they also find that he is still not sane. So he was declared not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was found guilty of it, but he was found not guilty because of insanity. Now, I, that's confusing to me. Um, and because of this, he had to live out his days in the Central State Hospital. So can you explain that? Like, he's found guilty of her murder, but he's also found insane, so thereby declared not guilty, but he still has to serve time because he's still guilty. Like, it's just confusing to me. I don't have a law degree, so I can't understand it. And if someone listening has a law degree or can talk me through this, I'd appreciate it. I just don't understand, I guess, the, the turn of events. Like, I'm glad he's being held, obviously, because he is guilty. He should. But they also found him not guilty. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. Um, while he was at the Central State Hospital, he filed a petition with the Washara County Clerk of Courts that he had recovered, his mental health was better, and he was no longer insane and should therefore be released from the hospital. 
Thankfully, after reviewing his petition and after a reevaluation that was denied, he sent back to the hospital. June 27, 1974, four years later, is when he's moved to Mendota Mental Institute in Madison. And while he was there, he was considered to be a model patient. He took to living there very well. He adapted in the environment with the proper care. And Ed was there until he died after a long battle with cancer on July 27, 1984. While he was there, it was found that Ed was suffering from chronic schizophrenia, among other things. Um, and I just did like a super, super quick little research on chronic schizophrenia. There's not one known thing that's thought to make someone schizophrenic. Rather, it's a lot of elements in one, according to my findings. Before someone is even born, they could have factors in the womb that could cause it, such as malnourishment or exposes to viruses, lead exposure, or sometimes the father's older age. A stressful home life can also contribute. And this would make sense because we know Ed had a very, very, very stressful home life. Typically, someone who suffers from schizophrenia has a smaller hippocampus, and this is the part of the brain known as the limbic system, and this limbic system is responsible for processing emotions as well as memories. So that's a super quick, not in-depth at all look at schizophrenia. I just wanted to explain it briefly before I said Ed was labeled as one. Ed would often say that when he was committing these crimes, like I said, he'd go into these dazes, which now we know is very common um, with schizophrenic events. Now, during Ed's stay at these institutions while he's there, the farmhouse and the land were scheduled to be auctioned off on March 30th, but that early morning, the neighbors were shocked to see the smoke of a huge fire at the Gein farm. When they arrived at the farm, it had been destroyed. Nothing was left of the farmhouse but burnt boards and ashes. But the neighbors were relieved. Like, they wanted the house gone. They wanted the notoriety gone. They thought if the house was gone... Maybe people would stop talking about it and stop associating it with the town of Plainfield. And to this day, it isn't known how the fire started, like whether it was an act of God or if a neighbor burnt it down. Either way, the town doesn't care. They're just glad that it's gone. They wanted all talk of Ed Gein and his horror house to stop so they could get back to normal. However, despite the townspeople wanting life to go back to normal, and now Ed's finally dead, his home's gone, Unfortunately for them, Ed Gein's story was never going to go away. Robert Bloch wrote a novel in 1959 called Psycho, and this book was highly based on the life and crimes of Ed Gein. Later, Alfred Hitchcock discovered the book, and he loved it and wanted to make a film about it, and he did later that year, and it just became a national hit. It's a horror classic. I just watched it for the first time about a month ago, and it was so good. You really see the Norman Bates character's struggles, and when you watch him on screen, you, and as I was researching this with Ed Gein, my mind just immediately saw Ed Gein and Norman Bates. It was crazy. Other things that were inspired by him, 1974, the movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, and it was based on the story of Ed Gein and his crimes, albeit, you know, there's liberties taken within the film, as there always is. The movie Deranged Confections or Confessions of a Necrophile came out in 74. That's after him as well. The movie Silence of the Lambs, which is another masterpiece of a film, was released on 1991. And the serial killer Buffalo Bill, he creates a skin suit from his kidnapped women. And of course, that's largely based on Ed Gein as well. The House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, that they also take 
um, things from Ed Gein's story. There's countless other references to the human skin-wearing killer, and all of those point back to the OG human skin-wearing man, Ed Gein's true crimes. Even though Ed Gein is dead, his horror house is gone, he's finally gone, but sadly, his disgusting, twisted memory still remains, and that's evident even today as I'm talking about his case in 2021. You guys, (laughs) that's it. That's the end of Ed Gein and his house of horrors. RIP to his victims. We'll never know for sure if Ed killed more than Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden, or maybe he killed his brother. We'll never know that for sure. Maybe he's responsible for other crimes that he just never confessed to. Who knows? Only Ed knows, and the truth was buried with him. He is buried in the same cemetery that he used to grave rob. He was buried right next to his mom in the Plainfield Cemetery. He was laid to rest there, but after many vandalisms and pieces of his tombstone being sold for collector's pieces, which is disgusting, don't ever do that, he was buried in the Plainfield Cemetery in an unmarked grave off of Interstate 39 in central Wisconsin. His grave had to be hidden so that people would stop vandalizing the grave. Guys, that is it. I am finally done with the case of Ed Gein. Almost two hours altogether of information about this guy. Whew, I'm glad to be done. Um, thank you for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new case. I really appreciate your guys' support. Feel free to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at addicted underscore crime. Send us a Gmail for business inquiries, questions, or case suggestions at IamAddictedToCrime at gmail.com. Thank you to the sponsors who supported this show, as well as thank you to my loyal Patreons. I really appreciate the support that they give me to just the support for the Financial Times 2 to release the content for you guys. Like, I really appreciate all my listeners, but especially my Patreons. If you want to join our Patreon, you can find that information on our website, www.addictedtocrime.org. Also on that website, don't forget, we have awesome merch as well as the sources for this episode and even a place where you can listen to the episodes. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. And as always, stay safe, you guys. I will see you next time. Bye-bye.